Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please rise for the call to worship. Nehemiah 9, 5, and 6. Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven and the heaven of heavens will with all their host, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them. You preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. And let us worship the Lord now together by remaining standing and singing together hymn number 290. you again this evening for calling us to this place and to this hour. We praise you for the the hymn book and the Bibles which we possess and for the Christian who is beside us and even the building in which we find ourselves. Uh, Lord, many of these things we would call uh, the circumstances, not the elements of worship, just the outward things uh, that make worship possible. But even, even for those, we thank you. And certainly for the elements themselves, for the reading and the preaching uh, the singing, the the praying, all of the things that make worship what it is. But above all, O oh Lord, we are we are seeking your spirit and your life to be present in our midst. We ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would uh, fall upon your church and that you would fill up not only uh, us individually, but our fellowship with your life and with your power and with your blessed unity. We know, Holy Spirit, that you are the author of Christian unity and Christian fellowship. You are the one who binds the church together as one. 
You are the one who gives the Christian a spirit of charity, not only for his brother in the same church, but also for his Christian as he finds him in every place and even in, in every nation. Lord, there is a sense of deep and, and, uh, and a strong unity which uh, Christians have with one another, uh, should we meet them from any place. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for the way in which you uh, offer this testimony to our hearts that that a Christian is uh, is our brother, as you said, Lord Jesus, who are my mother, who, who is my mother and my brothers. It's he who does the will of God. And we have that sense as well. The strongest ties that we have are those of Christian fellowship. Lord, these things are too precious to give away. And we want to maintain them as strongly as we possibly can. We want to have in this place a spirit uh, of, of incredible charity toward our brother. We know, oh God, there are so many things which might divide us, but we pray that... Uh, the things which unite us would be would be the great things which cause us to sing. The things that we sing about in the hymn book. The things that uh, hopefully we hear about in the sermons. Father, there is great reason to rejoice, certainly, as we come together in the church. We recognize that you are the giver of all good gifts. And indeed, you are more generous than we could ever imagine. And so... Uh, so, uh, so often in scripture we are told just to ask and, and, and then we will receive. And if for, uh, for whatever reason we do not receive, it is because of your goodness that you withhold, not because of your severity. Yet at the same time, we, we can also say that you are a God who is severe in a way that makes us uh, grave in our Christianity. It, it doesn't make us light and airy. We are, uh, we are called in worship especially to take things with incredible seriousness to realize that we're dealing with heaven and hell and that as we hope to be in heaven with you forever dwelling together with the saints and with the angels and indeed with you yourself uh, that even there uh, we will have the gravest seriousness about us uh, because we will be conscious of the fact that we are there and others are not Uh, what could make a man more solemn than that to realize he has a place in heaven even while people he knew in this world we're forever assigned to a place of torment and hell. Lord, uh, we are grateful that you are, uh, you are still inviting sinners into fellowship with yourself. The kingdom of God, if we could put it this way, is not yet full. Uh, there is still room and you are still inviting men and women and, and even little ones into your fellowship. We pray that the work of the church in this world would go on until uh, the full number has been brought in. Uh, and even until we should see... Uh, that all Israel is saved, whatever that does mean, O oh Lord. Uh, we grant that Christians are open to different interpretations, so that only you know for sure what the true meaning is. But there is some measure that has yet to be in, yet yet to be met uh, that we will see met in the last days. We look forward to that, O oh God. We realize that the church's work must go on, and that we are to keep on calling sinners unto repentance and to see that the church. Uh, well, as we reflected this morning, the church is in such a, a condition that people would be welcomed and that they would be uh, blessed in coming, that our household is in order, and, and so as it is in order, so it is also increasing. Father, bring us through these days, these perplexing days of pandemic. It's, it's so wearying to us all, and we're so ready for it to be over. Uh, it, it has been so frustrating for the church and, and for its ministers and for its members. Uh, and it has been a, an unnecessarily divisive thing, God, uh, in our nation and in the church and everywhere, even in families. God, we ask you uh, that, that certainly here that the gospel would prevail, uh, but that as we lift up our prayers to you, that you would hear them and that you would bring. Well, Lord, it's difficult to know what to pray. 
What are we asking? Are we asking you to make our lives easy? That's not what we're asking. Uh, you never promised that you would. But we are asking uh, perhaps that you might uh, bring with speed an end to this trial. It has wearied us uh, very greatly. Uh, but in all things, O oh Lord, we are, we are content uh, to say your will be done and not our own and praise you for it. Whatever things you should bring into our lives, even things which we do not understand, things which perplex us. And we give you all of the praise and the glory and the honor. We rejoice in all of your providences. We confess you alone are the Lord and there is no other. And in that sense, O oh Lord, we look forward with great expectation at the things you will do. Not with dread, but with great hopefulness. And we pray all of this then in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is the first of two scripture readings. Now, uh, this has been a scripture reading, and I, I just think it's, it's relevant enough again to read it again, since uh, we have a direct reference to the passage, the passing through the Red Sea. As I say it, we find it uh, directly referenced in this passage, as well as Hebrews chapter 11. This is what Paul says, moreover, moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, there's the reference, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and then looking beyond uh, our chapter in Exodus, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And then uh, Hebrews chapter 11. I, I suppose I hadn't thought of this and I wasn't prepared for this at first. I keep preaching this unbelieving and apostate evil generation. And then we find them in Hebrews 11. Well, what do we make of that? That'll be the final point of the sermon. The, the great example, uh, examples, plural, of faith celebrated in Hebrews 11, the wilderness generation that we were told so many times in Hebrews not to be like. They're actually celebrated here. I almost don't know what to make of it, though perhaps, perhaps by the end of the sermon, uh, we will have settled the issue. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of this king's command. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater Riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. None of that surprises us. Moses, the man of faith, and yet we read by faith, verse 29, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians Attempting to do so, we're drowned. Well, as I say in the sermon, we'll try to see what to make of that fact. But uh, for now, let us stand together and sing the doxology in response to God's word. Praise God from 
be seated. If you would look on with me uh, to the Nicene Creed, which you can find in the front cover of your Blue Trinity hymnal, one of the great historic uh, formulations of the doctrine of the Trinity. As we know, the church wrestled for hundreds of years to get this just right, uh, and we are indebted to their formulations, which we find in the Nicene Creed. So let us read and recite this together. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Now, if you would stand with me and sing hymn number 535 as a hymn of preparation.
Amen. Please be seated. Hmm. And now turning to Exodus chapter 14. As, as uh, you know, we are dividing that famous chapter in two. So up to the Red Sea last time, now through the Red Sea. Exodus chapter 14, verses 21 through 31. And hear the word of God. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea into dry land. And the waters were divided, so the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left and the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's house, horses, I mean, his chariots and his horsemen. Now, it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians uh, through the pillar of fire and cloud. And he troubled the army of the Egyptians and he took off their chariot wheels so that they drove uh, them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel For the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians on their chariots and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained, but the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Let us pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word once more. We thank you for the testimony of Moses here. And even, strange though it seems, the testimony of their faith here, those who passed through the Red Sea. We ask you that you would help us through the preaching to gain a better grasp of Uh, how this message fits within the broader message of their unbelief and apostasy. Help us to understand, O God, what it is you have to say to the church this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last time we saw Israel venture up to the Red Sea. Now we see them cross it. Uh, The passage, these uh, 11 verses, is very straightforward. We see that just as the angel in the pillar positions himself between uh, the people and the Egyptians, Moses stretches his hand out over the sea and the Lord divides the sea by his almighty power, which is unquestionably a miracle. It is an instance of divine power on a par with the kind of thing we uh, or the kind of things, plural, we read in the Gospels. We see the people now proceed through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on either side, the Lord taking the rear, protecting them from Egypt's pursuit. Yet Egypt is still able to proceed behind them, though at a distance, and they are unable to overtake them uh, because of the Lord who guarded the rear. 
It's difficult to imagine or describe the sense of wonder both parties must have felt as they passed through the Red Sea on dry ground. Again, as I say, it is an instance, a miraculous instance of the Lord's almighty power. The sense of wonder uh, here that both parties felt, though for different reasons. Israel wondering at yet another instance of the Lord's saving mercies. Egypt, on the other hand, that they were, it seemed, protected from drowning by that same power, the power which had uh, heretofore been against them at every instance. Now it seemed, at least for the moment, it protected even them from drowning. Well, with the passage of some time, we get the sense from the passage we read in verse 24 that something changed. The pillar that separated the two parties now looked upon the Egyptian armies with a frightful stare. Kyle and Dillich imagine uh, in their commentary that it was a flame of fire that burst forth from uh, the pillar of cloud. Uh, though it doesn't say. There's just uh, a disconcerting look, a frightful look from uh, the cloud, which, uh, which sets Egypt in uh, panic and confusion. A kind of look that indicated to them now that it was not all right after all, that they were not safely passing through the waters as Israel were, but that the power which protected Israel was once again against them and about to consume them. And so rather at that moment than pursuing Israel any longer, uh, they retreat. But here they find it is too late. As Matthew Henry says, men will not be convinced till it is too late that those who meddle with God's people meddle to their own hurt. Now they were convinced it was all a grave mistake and that they ought to have heeded the word of the Lord, but it was too late. And now they must drown in the sea and have their bodies washed up on the seashore, Pharaoh and all his hosts. This too occurs at Moses' command as he obeys the word of the Lord and stretches his hand over the sea for a second time. The people now, the people of Israel, having passed over safely to the other side. And again, we notice as we have before how perfect God's timing is. He is never late and he is never early, but his timing is always just right. It is just as Israel comes to the other side that the Lord comes against Egypt with his final blow. And how glorious his mercies and his judgments now appear when we read as a conclusion to all this verses 30 and 31. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw that the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. There is no uh, understating the fact that this was an incredible moment in the life of the people of Israel, an incredible moment in her history, a celebrated moment that was to be celebrated through all of her history. We see it immediately celebrated in the Song of Moses in the next chapter, chapter 15. This was an occasion to praise the Lord, and it would stand as an occasion to praise the Lord for generations to come. Israel would be called again and again, as we will see, to praise the Lord on account of uh, his mighty work of salvation here. Not just to praise the Lord, but as we'll also see, to obey the Lord. 
In fact, as Voss says, Gerhardus Voss in his book, Biblical Theology, the exodus from Egypt was the Old Testament redemption, which is why I have called uh, exodus the gospel of the Old Testament. I think that is a fair statement. The exodus from Egypt was the Old Testament redemption. And you will never understand the, old, the outlook of the Old Testament religion and the religious consciousness of the Old Testament believer until you see this. The significance of this event passing through the Red Sea. The Lord saving the people and at the same time destroying their enemies. And so that will become our first point, namely the objective basis of salvation. In other words, what I'm saying is that, and the Exodus helps us to see this, salvation itself is a historical phenomenon. It is something that has a factual basis. And yet, I would notice that there is a tendency, especially among New Testament believers, to over-spiritualize salvation, to think of it almost purely in terms of a personal experience between myself and the Lord. That is what I mean when I say to over-spiritualize it, to place salvation almost purely in the realm of the subjective, ignoring almost entirely the objective factual basis of salvation. And to treat my own personal experience of grace is the only thing that really matters. It is against this tendency that the Exodus stands as a strong corrective. It would have done so for the Israelite of old if he was given or prone to this error. It does so today to the New Testament believer where the error uh, is pervasive. The Exodus, as much as anything in the Bible, demonstrates, as Voss says, the realism of redemption. I like how he puts that, the realism of redemption, or to use my own words, the factual basis of salvation. That salvation is an objective fact on the plane of history. That it belongs uh, to the truths you read about in other history books. There is nothing we're reading about in the Bible that is untrue. And in this, Voss argues, and I am in agreement that the New Testament and the Old Testament stand in complete agreement on this point, and that the method of salvation one finds in the Old Testament at the Exodus is the same method one finds in the New Testament. The facts are different, obviously, but the method of salvation is one and the same. In the New Testament, the great event, or the great fact, historical fact, is obviously uh, the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. But even then, you see, salvation is above all rooted and grounded in history and facts. And salvation is presented to us as a historical fact. There would be no Christianity or New Testament but for the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. And we could never hope to be Christians ourselves but for that history recorded for us in the New Testament. I'm saying that the New Testament is for us what the Old Testament was for the Old Testament Jew. A history or a record of the of, of his salvation. And so it is on the basis of the history of the life of Jesus Christ that the whole of the Christian uh, Christian religion is constructed just as it was for the Jew on the basis of the history of the Exodus that his whole religion was to be constructed. Indeed, it was against this very tendency that J. Gresham Machen had to deal with uh, had to deal when he wrote. His book, Christianity and Liberalism. As I was reflecting upon this point uh, in the week, I was remembering that the first point he makes in that book has to do with this very point. This was, in many ways, the battle he was fighting or the war he was waging. He was dealing with those uh, 
Now, this was a hundred years ago, but nothing has really changed. So you think about the, the warfare of the church against her enemies, uh, enemies, uh, the teachers of error, I mean. Those who said, in essence, the facts do not matter. They may or may not be true. Maybe Jesus performed miracles. He probably didn't. What matters, they would say, is the spirit of things. The spirit of Christianity, which is one of love and tolerance. Uh, They would even go so far as to say, maybe not in Mason's day, but today, it, it really doesn't matter that much whether Jesus ever even lived and walked this earth as an actual person. What matters once more is the spirit he embodied and taught. And if we embody that same spirit, then we are Christians. There you have the liberal gospel. The facts don't matter. They place salvation purely in realm in the realm of the subjective. Now, never mind the fact that in this presentation of the gospel, they always miss the real impulse in the spirit of Jesus' life. They claim to place a premium on that, but then they utterly misconstrue it. What they do, we are not surprised, is to make them a modern liberal like themselves. Now, they were doing that in the 1920s, but they're doing the same thing today, and I know you know what I'm talking about. But suppose... Uh, for a moment, that they were able to get the spirit itself right, even then they would still be wrong in what they are suggesting. They would be wrong for this reason, and that is, again, that they place too much emphasis on the spiritual subjective side of things to the complete exclusion of the outward, the objective, and the factual. A close reading of the New Testament will will quickly dispel this error, as Machen would argue, and as I'm arguing, time and again, It is the facts of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, uh, which are not only presented in the New Testament, but which form the basis of the Christian religion. And especially, let me uh, let me say emphatically, not simply the Christian religion, but of the Christian life. In other words, uh, the subjective side of things, my own personal salvation is not just a matter between me and the Lord, whatever I make of it. But it is something which is founded entirely upon the facts of the life of Jesus Christ as found in the New, in the New Testament. On this point, as Paul says, the Old Testament and the New Testament are not at odds, but they share a common point of view. Namely, as he says, the closest linking together of the facts and the practice of the religious life. The closest linking together of the facts and the practice of the religious life. In the Old Testament, we see this constantly. For instance, in the giving of the Ten Commandments. So often, we simply start with the first commandment. But that isn't where we should start. That isn't where Exodus 20 starts. That isn't where the Westminster Shorter Catechism starts. The Westminster Shorter Catechism starts in Exodus 20, verse 1, with the preface to the Ten Commandments. And do you know what the preface to the Ten Commandments is? It is a recounting of the Exodus. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have uh, shall not make for yourself a carved image and so forth. Do you understand the method which is presented here and the basis of uh, of the, the religious experience and the religious life? It is based upon the facts of redemption. That is the basis upon which the law is given. And upon which the law is to be obeyed. Redemption seen as an objective fact becomes the basis of obedience in the Christian life. The realism of redemption again as Voss says. And so 
What I'm saying is that the facts of redemption provide the basis of the way of life presented in the Bible. And you can never, you can never get to the way of life it presents and commends in any other way. You can never really live the Christian life except on this single basis. And as you go through the Old Testament, this is what you constantly see. You see time and again, the Exodus event is being referred to. And as you come to the New Testament, you discover that things are no different. The Gospels themselves make this clear as you read uh, in the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are a presentation of the history of Jesus Christ. And then on the basis of the facts of that life, you have the history in the book of Acts of the early church. And then following that in the letters of Paul and, and others, the significance of that history is worked out doctrinally. It's the same method. It's the same construction of religion. Surely we are able to see, therefore, that the New Testament is nothing if it is not a record of history. The history of Jesus Christ and his disciples who formed the church. And who sought to understand the significance and the meaning of his life. Well, I reference Machen's book, Christianity and Liberalism. Let me read something from that book where he contends with the liberals of his day. He says, if any one fact is clear, it is that the Christian movement at its inception was not just a way of life in the modern sense, but a way of life founded upon a message. It was based not upon mere feeling, nor upon a mere program of work, but upon an account of facts. In other words, it was, it was based upon doctrine. Or I, I could add, it was based upon history. But you see the point. And the, the significance of this point must be fully appreciated by us. It is, once again, that we see the realism of redemption as we find in the Exodus and as we find in the life of Jesus Christ. It is that we see salvation in its outward objective sense as something broader and something grander than my own personal salvation or, or even simply my own uh, personal sense of salvation. But to see salvation as an objective reality is something that God accomplishes in history no less real than anything else that belongs in the realm of what is real and true and factual. For Israel, obviously, it was uh, the exodus. And so we see that her redemption was more than an inward experience of grace, though it surely included that. And it would be equally wrong to exclude uh, the inward on the basis of the outward. We're only trying to notice how the inward ever comes to be the inward experience of grace. And the answer is not on its own, but through an experience of the outward and an appreciation of the outward. What was uh, Israel's redemption, uh, uh, the exodus, I mean? What was that to her as a nation seen as salvation? Well, it was, in fact, her objective deliverance from the objective realm of and the power of sin, namely Egypt. She was actually brought out of a place of un, uh, unbelief to a place uh, one might have hoped of belief. And this is no less true, again, when we come to the pages of the New Testament. Salvation there is considered not as a mere internal principle which is being worked out and discovered by each believer in his own way, but rather it is an experience which can be quite varied from individual to individual of a common salvation based on objective facts, which can be stated as simply as this. Christ has died. Christ has risen Christ is coming again. In fact, we just confessed that in the Nicene Creed, didn't we? 
We are saying that we share in common what uh, the Christians of the 4th and the 5th century uh, believed. And our participation in salvation is a participation and a belief in the same facts. And on this basis and no other does the believer experience and enjoy the newness of life and the certainty of the future resurrection. In other words, on the basis of this, does he come to have a personal experience of salvation? Now, let me try to explain to you, by way of application, why this is such an important point to make. Uh, aside from the fact that this is a major point for Israel, again, the objective basis of her salvation, we should see it as equally as true uh, for ourselves. The first is this, uh, no surprise here, borrowing from Machen and the burden which he felt in his own day, the same burden which we might feel today. In fact, I would say the, the stakes are only higher because from his day, the, the errors which were present have only been able to work themselves themselves out for, for many generations and really to blossom within the church. And so the first reason I stress this is because you will never be able to safeguard Christianity itself from the dangers of liberalism or from becoming a liberal yourself, one who constantly adjusts the spirit of Christianity to the spirit of the age, unless you make Christianity and indeed the whole of biblical religion to rest upon the facts which are presented there, to construct the biblical religion solely upon the Bible itself. It's so simple when you put it that way, and yet it's so rare, isn't it? Well, the liberal is one, I would say, who doesn't start with the Bible, not at all. He is one who starts, rather, with the situation and the outlook as he finds in the modern world. That, in fact, is his starting point. And then he adjusts his understanding of religion on this basis. He begins uh, on his pursuit uh, to look for the problems which he finds in society today and, and perhaps to find solutions in the Bible. But it is all adjusted to the modern situation. And it's no surprise in light of this that the religion he finds in the Bible through a strained form of exegesis looks awfully similar to the kinds of things that he's advocating for today in society. Whatever ism he might be advocating for, uh, he finds to be the great burden of the New Testament or even of the Old Testament. He finds it as the burden of the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. Even in his death on the cross, he finds it. Jesus there vindicating whatever point he might be advocating for. He looks in the ancient religion of the Old Testament and lo and behold, he finds it there too. I might also add, let me be fair, that the fundamentalist does the exact same thing. He takes whatever his modern burdens are and he imports them into the Bible. And then he makes the Bible argue for the very thing he wishes to argue for. But the true biblical conservative, which is to say the true Christian, the one who is interested in conserving the form of religion found in the Bible, always starts with the Bible. And he is able, as a result, to understand it on its own terms. He doesn't come with his own ideas, or if he does, he allows the Bible to adjust them and to correct them. He realizes that the Bible presents its own message and its own history. And on the basis of these things, does he form his own beliefs of what is true and what ought to be believed and practiced as a Christian? In other words, he constructs his worldview and his view of Christianity based upon the Bible. And he even begins to understand the world in which he lives on the same basis. The Bible is the thing or the lens through which he understands the world in which he lives. He does not adjust his understanding of the Bible based upon the world. Again, 
As I say, that is what the liberal does. He rather adjusts his understanding of the world based upon what he reads in the Bible. You notice the difference. And it is no surprise, therefore, that the religion of these two men looks very different. But it's easy to see how the first man arrives at his position almost by accident in many cases, only because he did not take the time to evaluate his starting point. He did not take the time to think that the subjective aspects of his own personal religion might find another basis than what he finds in the world today. And so starting off on the wrong foot, he goes down the wrong path and he makes a shipwreck of his faith. But there is another reason this point is so important to grasp. And that is because our very experience of salvation depends upon it. My own personal subjective sense of salvation and experience of grace depends upon this. There can be no religious experience, I mean, apart from the facts presented in the Bible. And without these facts, our experience as Christians will ever depend upon our own inward resources, which can produce nothing more than human works. And so take Romans 6, for example. I I assume you were familiar with the argument there. Speaking of our death to sin and our slavery to sin having ended. Or take uh, as another example the tremendous pastoral arguments which are presented in the book of Hebrews. And notice how those pastoral applications are brought to the church. And then realize that these two passages are nothing but applications of the great facts of redemption. Beginning with Romans chapter 6. That Christ in his death has died to sin. That's what Paul tells us. And if I am in him, then I too have died to sin and now enjoy a newness of life from which I may uh, put away the old life of the old man and the sinful practices which I once practiced and begin to live a life of obedience and holiness and so forth. And the way to realize this, namely the newness of life, the newness of the Christian life progressively, is not to dwell so much on that new life and my own experience of it, But rather, if you understand uh, the argument of the apostle in Romans chapter 6, to dwell more and more upon the great facts presented there. And the more I appreciate this single fact that Christ has died to sin once for all, and I with him, the more I will discover the true power of Christian living victoriously is found not in myself, but in him, and in particular in his death to sin, and by faith my participation in that death. Likewise, in the book of Hebrews, as we've seen, we see again and again the stress in the first ten chapters is that Christ is our great high priest in heaven. There is the fact of the objective facts uh, and the basis of the Christian religion. And it is only as we come by faith to appreciate this fact more and more that we will come to know the real secret of progress and grace and holiness. And that is to see our total dependence upon our great high priest in heaven, along with his total willingness to receive us, to save us, and to help us in time of need. And so the the objective facts are important. They are desperately important. If ever we wish to have a real and a genuine experience of grace in our lives. Otherwise, we are bound to fight for ourselves and to make of Christianity whatever we will. And so it will be what it is not. Well, so much for the first point. A second point, there are three points I want to make. Second, very briefly. We also see that, I don't want to dwell on this point too long. 
Uh, maybe it should be important to me, but it isn't. I'm more interested in making the final point, and that is the typology which is present here. We find in here a typology that is expressed in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In particular, we see uh, that the passing through the Red Sea was a kind of baptism. It was a type of baptism, Paul says, by which Israel as a nation was bound and committed to Moses and even to the Lord himself. We can't very well say uh, that this any more than baptism was her salvation since we know that, in fact, she wasn't saved. Not really. Later she will become apostate. Nevertheless, we should notice the typology. We could also say in a very broad sense that this was, passing through the Red Sea, a type of salvation. Just as for, for Egypt, uh, it was a type of the final judgment to come. But I don't want to dwell too much on this point. I just want to notice it for you. But the big point, uh, or a bigger point, the first point was also big, wasn't it? The third point does interest me a great deal. I've referred to it already. As a final point, the faith and fear and apostasy of Israel. I might have said the faith and fear of Israel, but that would not have satisfied me. That would have left too many questions unanswered. And so rather, I entitled this point, the faith and the fear and the apostasy of Israel. Even though we read nothing here of her apostasy. Well, we find Israel here, as in chapter 4, uh, only with the order reversed, believing in what God and his servant, uh, believing in God, I mean, and his servant in the fear of the Lord. I say the order is reversed because here she was unbelieving before she crossed the Red Sea, and then we read at the end that she was believing. Whereas in chapter 4, she was believing, but by the end of chapter 5, she was unbelieving. So here, uh, the order is reversed. And we might have good hopes for Israel on this basis. At this moment, what we read at the end of the chapter, I'll just read verse 31. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt, so the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. That verse is a very fitting picture of what the church should be, the visible church. Especially as she considers and enjoys the objective blessings of salvation. However, the point is somewhat confusing to me, as I've confessed already, at least at first, because we've already seen and we already know that the wilderness community is unbelieving and eventually will become apostate. And so what do we make of her faith here? Well, there is no escaping the conclusion that her faith was sound, at least at this moment. Not only because of what Moses says in verse 31, uh, but uh, we might say uh, only to heighten our sense of the dilemma, because Hebrews itself in the great chapter on faith, as we've already noticed, includes her faith at this moment in the long list of celebrated examples. By faith, she crossed through uh, the Red Sea. It was, as we've been seeing in Hebrews, uh, the kind of faith that uh, we ought to have. It was by faith solely in God's word that she proceeded on dry ground through the sea. This is a very good illustration of what faith is. A faith which proceeds into difficult and even absurd circumstances to the human reason, solely on the basis of God's word. Here they were told, as we saw last time, to go forward into the very sea. And they went forward. 
we have to admit that this is a striking instance of faith for all of her doubt and unbelief at the, at the moment of her extremity. We have to marvel at the fact that she did go forward at the Lord's command and that she did believe that the Lord would bring her safely through. And so he did. Connected with this, as though I haven't said enough already in favor of her faith, is her faith in God's servant, Moses. It's something we also read. So the people feared the Lord and believed in, in the Lord and his servant, Moses. She was not only happy in that moment with the Lord himself in, in this happy providence, but she was even, you might say, to put it very generally, uh, pleased with the minister the Lord had given them. Kylan Dillich, uh, faith in the Lord was inseparably connected with faith in Moses, the servant of the Lord. Now, I don't want to make too much of this point, lest I seem self-serving in doing so. But I would just notice generally that those who scorn the Lord's ministers also scorn the Lord himself. It's something that we find in the case of Moses. It's something we find uh, constantly throughout the Bible. The one who hates the minister is the one who is unbelieving. It is an instance of unbelief, not only to reject the Lord, but his messengers. Just as we can say in opposite fashion, that it takes faith to listen to what God's servants have to say. Not only to listen, but to believe and to take it to heart. And nothing but faith will ever make you do this. But even still, we have not concluded uh, our commendation of their faith. We even see that they feared the Lord. A third aspect of faith. They believed the Lord, they believed his servants, and they feared the Lord. Does that sound familiar? I would say that is fitting given the morning sermon, wouldn't you? This fits exactly what we saw in that sermon. That faith trembles at the threatenings. Noah, being warned, was moved with godly fear. Well, they had just experienced one of the most frightful things of all. They passed safely through the Red Sea, and yet they beheld at the same time the terrible judgment of the Lord upon the Egyptians, seeing their very bodies wash upon the seashore. And who could behold that kind of judgment and not tremble in fear at the Lord? And so there I say, by faith with Noah, they were moved with godly fear. They trembled at the awesomeness of the judgment they had just beheld. This was an aspect and an instance of their faith. That is exactly what faith should be. It is right to fear the Lord when he comes in judgment. Just as Egypt on the other side in her unbelief was or her unbelief itself was demonstrated in the fact that she didn't fear the Lord and that she ought to fear the Lord. And perhaps if Egypt had, she would have never been consumed. Well, she did fear the Lord, didn't she? But only when it was too late. So all of this is a very good and a fitting description of faith. Uh, very shortly, I, I suppose I'll be making these points in one of the morning sermons. Such a good example that it is mentioned even in Hebrews chapter 11. And so we might uh, simply stop there and rejoice. But as I said, I wouldn't be satisfied with that. And given all that I've said thus far, I'd, I hope that you wouldn't either. Because as I say, not only what we find in Exodus, but even in Hebrews itself, the wilderness community is presented to us as the apostate community and as a warning to the church. First Corinthians 10 as well. So how can we account for that? How can we account for the fact that her faith is celebrated here and yet later she became apostate? It's easier to account for apostasy when we notice her unbelief as we did in the last passage, isn't it? Far more difficult when we notice her faith and even notice her faith celebrated. 
When we see a remarkable instance of faith, something which challenges even ourselves, a belief in the promise, obedience to the command, and a trembling at the threatenings, even a faith and humble submission to the Lord's anointed messenger. The question becomes, where do things go wrong? Well, as it turns out, that very question is an important uh, way of understanding and defining what apostasy is. It is the going wrong of things that helps us to see what is apostasy. Remember that the apostate is someone who is different from the unbeliever. The unbeliever simply goes his own way. He never does believe or accept the message of God's messengers. The unbeliever here are the Egyptians, not the Israelites. The unbeliever never even tries to walk the pilgrim way. But the apostate is altogether different. He has a kind of faith for a time. He appears to believe and to obey the Lord. He even rejoices in the good things of of God. But he only does so when things are easy. And his faith, if we may even call it that, is of a temporary kind. If you think of what Jesus says in the parable of the sower, I think you will see my point. The seed is sown among the stony places, uh, Jesus says, is the one which hears the word and receives it with joy. And, And he endures even for a little while. It would appear, if you consider him at that moment, that he's genuinely converted, much as we find Israel here. And if all you had was this particular snapshot of his life, you would have to conclude that not only uh, he is a genuine believer, but even that you have something of an example of true faith. Yes, Jesus says, but when tribulation or persecution arises because of the world, he stumbles. He falls away. And that is exactly what happens to Israel. And that is exactly the true characteristic of apostasy. The apostate is believing only so long as there is reason to rejoice. Only when God's mighty acts were evident and upon them. But with the first instance of trial, her faith simply disappears. And Israel is as ready to curse God as she was to bless him in times of plenty. Again, let me quote Matthew Henry, who puts this well when he says, Oh, that there had been such a heart in them as now there seemed to be. Sensible mercies, when they are fresh, make sensible impressions. But with many, these impressions soon wear off. While they see God's works and feel the benefit of them, they fear him and trust him. But they soon forget his works and then they slight him. The apostate is one who forgets. And so the lesson is this as well as the resolution to the difficulty. The difference between the apostate and the true believer is inevident at first. Jesus himself tells us that. At times you can hardly distinguish them. But look at them both after a little while. Look at them both in the season of trial in particular. Then you will know. And I would also add as a word of personal application in light of this, in the spirit of the book of Hebrews, look to your own faith. Not so much in seasons of blessing, but in seasons of hardship and sore trials. Beware lest you harden your hearts at God's word as they later did and so perished in the wilderness. But then as a word of encouragement, using those words of Hebrews chapter 10 verses 35 through 39. And I closed with this. Thinking of the frightful possibility of apostasy. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which is great reward. 
For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul is no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Amen. And let us respond to God's word by standing and singing together hymn number 526. the Lord's blessing, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.